For ambitious young people, university life presents remarkable opportunities and challenges, the most fundamental of which is how to carve out their own path. Welcome to Uncharted, a podcast where Pioneer alumni share how they have navigated making some of the most important decisions every university student faces. Uncharted, the Pioneer Alumni Podcast, is hosted and produced by alumni of the Pioneer Research Program, a virtual research institute for outstanding high school students. Widely respected for its high standards in selectivity and academic rigor, it is the only fully accredited and college credit-bearing online research program. In Pioneer, students work one-on-one with university professors in advanced study and research of a topic of their interest, ranging from physics to gender studies culminating in a full-length undergraduate-level research paper. Since 2012, over 4,000 students from 71 countries and regions have completed the program and joined the Pioneer alumni community. This episode of Uncharted features Durga, who conducted research at Pioneer in 2020 in international relations, interviewing Rinalini, who conducted research at Pioneer in history in 2018. Rinalini is a rising junior at Columbia and is pursuing a double major in history and math. In this episode of Uncharted, she shares her experience combining history, art, and poetry to highlight overlooked historical figures, using creative works as a form of research besides traditional academic papers, and co-founded Columbia's first undergraduate journal on the Asian diaspora. If you are interested in law, social justice, and activism, this episode is definitely for you. Hello, I'm Durga, and I'm from India, and I did the Pioneer Research Program in spring to, uh, in the spring to summer term in 2020. My research concentration was Introduction to Ethnic Conflict Studies, which was between political science and IR, and currently I'm a freshman in the dual BA between Columbia University and Sciences Po, and Renalini, could you Hi, I'm Rinalini. I'm very excited to be here and speaking with Durga. I did Pioneer in the spring-summer of 2018. My focus was history, looking at topics in the history and sociology of public health. Now I am a sophomore at Columbia University, and I'm double majoring in history and math, and also doing research through some fellowship programs here on the rights of women in 20th century India and some of that activism and how it intersected with anti-colonialism. So those are kind of my current research interests. Oh, and I'm originally, I kind of grew up between New Delhi and New York, so I'm sort of between India and the U.S. We're really excited to have you and to speak with you because we feel that your insights and research and your experiences completing the Pioneer program and currently doing research at different fellowships, as you mentioned, and for your general undergraduate for the time as an undergraduate, we feel those insights could really inform our listeners. So thank you for taking the time to be with us today. So maybe you mentioned that you're double majoring in history and math. So I was really curious to know how, how do these interests really coalesce? And why do you think these two interests really merge? And you and I read that you do art as well. So how do you find an amalgam between history, math and art? 
Yeah, so I think I've definitely come to these interests from very different places. I think art was something I always, I used to do art since I was quite young. And so I always really loved it. When I was in high school, I did the IB program. So I did IB art as one of my subjects and definitely dedicated a lot of time in 11th and 12th grade to just working on art pieces and researching artists and doing art history. So I did really always love that. I also realized at that stage that the, I think the amount that it took to really put into developing an art exhibition was a lot. And I realized that I don't know, I didn't know if I could make that same very in-depth commitment to art in college while still doing kind of other academics, which is why now I, art is something I really enjoy doing kind of as a side passion. It's not something I'm still taking classes in, though I definitely miss it. History was something that definitely coalesced more when I was in high school. Since I think 10th grade was when I really like started falling in love with history. That's when I did Pioneer. And one of the reasons I did Pioneer for history was because I was taking AP US history that year. And our textbook, which is actually written by this historian at Columbia, Eric Foner, it was really just a fascinating kind of way of breaking up what I thought were very linear progressions in American history. So I think when you're young and you're reading like these famous historical figures, or you're reading about like mainstream kind of history narratives, you think that like, you know, everyone becomes more free or everything immediately becomes more kind of democratic and that's kind of how we get to where we are now when really when you start tracing that progression it's a lot more fraught there's a lot more kind of like I guess there's a lot less linearity than you would think there is and I've always found that part of history to be what really fascinates me the most like looking for these little anomalies and what would be like a pattern and thinking about you know why that happens and what we can learn from that and so that's what got me into history that year and that's kind of when I did pioneer and then I just really fell in love with the process of history research and so at that point I was definitely very like feeling very set on going into college and doing a history major and then math was <laughs> completely not something I expected to be I mean even now I like I, you know, I still have two more years, maybe I'll change my mind, but I, I always did math and through school and I, I liked it. And I going into college, was also enjoying English literature a lot. So I was thinking about a history major, maybe with English literature, but I wanted to keep math open as an option. So I did this math sequence in my freshman year and it was very hard, but I also loved it. And I think it's a similar way I mean, of course, a very different context because you're not looking for patterns the way you're looking at historical documents, but there is an element of like, I think problem solving and, and that kind of like mode of analysis that like you develop by doing math proofs that I think like trains your mind in a way that I think is just really valuable. And it maybe like complements the kind of work that you might do in history when you're looking at these primary sources and you're trying to like draw higher level conclusions from them. So I think that's kind of how I ended up getting to math. And to me, like in a way, like that was probably the one I was least likely to see myself doing. Like, I think if you had asked me in high school, I would not think of myself doing a math major or even minor in college because it just felt you know far out of reach and we also have this tendency I feel like to like pigeonhole ourselves as like I'm a humanities person or I'm a STEM person right and it's very rare to feel like you can be supported in doing both but I do think there is value to keeping it up and I, I don't know if that necessarily means for everyone doing a second major in a completely different subject but I think it does there's some value to like doing coursework in another subject or reading books that are not just from the subject you love to read I mean I have this problem all the time because I'm always reading history books and I feel like I need to read outside of history so just recently I started reading this book on math and it's kind of like math history but like you know it's like it's just been an interesting way of just diversifying what I read because otherwise I'm always reading. <laughs> I mean, I love reading history, but it's, it's, it's nice to like get your brain to think in a different way. And in terms of how they kind of 
intersect or converge. Definitely coursework wise, the math coursework is quite separate from the history coursework, but I do enjoy having it balance it out. Like sometimes you can kind of switch to working on a problem set versus doing a reading assignment or an essay. And I actually found like the art that I was doing in the end of high school and some of the art that I still do now, it definitely became very much informed by what I was passionate about in history, because I realized that I think art, um, like history in some ways gives you a platform to narrate and share stories, obviously in a very different way that you might do in a history essay or a history book, but it nonetheless kind of gives you that opportunity. And so when I was working on IB for my exhibition for art, I realized that, you know, to get something that's impactful, I needed to have a story in mind. And I thought there are all these women from history who I feel like are not spoken enough about, and maybe the artwork could be a way of sparking conversations about them. So for the past kind of three years, almost four years, all the art that I've been doing is a lot of like portraits of these women, which in, in different contexts, and then kind of, I'll write like little blurbs about their life stories and some of the historical context for what they did and what they represented, especially a lot of women from Asia who I feel like have been kind of erased from the way we tell narratives of anti-colonial movements is one example. And so I think that's kind of been enjoyable for me because I'll enjoy like doing the history research for, on someone and then making an art piece that kind of goes along with it. So yeah, that's a long-winded way of explaining these off, but I don't know, I hope it made some coherence. <laughs> yeah, so you spoke about non-linearities and patterns that you find in history and how similar interests kind of get transferred into your interests in math and how art has always been a way to creatively express yourself since a very long time. And you also do write poetry. So how do you see patterns shift into poetry as well? Do you see history weaving into the poetry that you write? And how does your research in general affect your poetry? And does your poetry affect the research and study that you do? Yeah. You know, I like was reading this thing quite recently that I like, it reminds me of this, that like someone was talking about how when sometimes you go into a lot of literature classes and you read a lot of poetry and sometimes that can make it hard to write your own because then you know you're always like mentally thinking about like how might you be read or like how do you obviously compare to these people who have been writing poetry all their lives and write this amazing beautiful work and it's hard then to actually produce any work that you're happy with and so I definitely had this experience I like wrote poetry quite a bit when I was in like ninth grade I did this creative writing class in the summer before 10th grade and I loved it and then I came back to school and I spent the next like few years like doing a lot of literature co coursework and you know reading a lot of poetry for class I learned a lot from that but I also I think did not keep up the practice of writing myself and it made it hard to get back to writing because then I was always thinking about like how might this be perceived when I think obviously like those are good questions to ask yourself but I don't know if those are the questions you want to be asking when you're in a really like early stage of your like a creative process because I think there's some value to just really like interiorizing at that point and thinking about what you want to express and then you can obviously think about the audience after so I hadn't written anything kind of poet, like po I hadn't written any poetry, hadn't really written creatively for quite a while. And I even got to a point where, I mean, I was really enjoying writing history papers and I thought maybe this is kind of the kind of writing that I'm going to be doing for the foreseeable future is more academic writing. And then this past summer was kind of when I got back into poetry and it was because of this research project that I was in actually. I was doing research on this woman named Mahadevi Verma who was a poet and an educator in India in the early 20th century. And I was reading her poetry and I was very much inspired by kind of the sentiment of it that it was kind of one of the early periods in Hindi poetry where people were really interested in like people's subjective emotions and not just thinking about concepts very abstractly or ideals very abstractly it was really thinking about the experience of human beings and making that almost like 
valuable enough a point of, to consider to be the subject of a poem in itself. And that really touched me. And I think there is an aspect, I've always kind of felt this with like doing research that the same thing happened to me when I was in Pioneer. Like you really get trapped in your little like world of like, you know, everything is what you're researching. Like you, you see it everywhere. You, you are like living, eating, breathing it, you know, especially when you're doing it, I think in the summer, because then it's not like you have coursework on the side. Like this is literally everything you're doing. And so I felt like I was kind of in that place. And I had just gone back to India for the first time in over a year to see my family that summer. And I had been working on a research paper to summarize the kind of findings of this project. And what was getting quite stuck on on writing that paper and I think there was some kind of emotion that was tied to being stuck on working on it because something that I've struggled with in this process has just been the kind of dearth of scholarship on someone like her and also how little people like her are included in both narratives of like the histories of like feminism and women's rights activism but also the history of like India's independence movement like I do think that someone like her should be seen as a person who influenced the way that Indian democracy was founded or the way that we've thought about women's rights activism and I couldn't find that anywhere and so I definitely had moments where I was questioning the project and I was saying like am I trying to take this too far and maybe should the scholarship on her like is because it's just on her poetry and it's not on her as a political theorist you know does that mean that this project is kind of futile in itself and then when I ask those questions I realized like I think those have a, a lot of emotional connotations of you know not seeing someone like her and generally I think someone like herself represented in these narratives of history and I thought that maybe you know instead of trying to write something very academic which I would like to come back to eventually to take that and write that in a poem because that seems like you're not being judged in about how you respond to different scholars when you write a poem you're just writing that like that's your own kind of you know expression so that's kind of what I ended up doing that I was just visiting my grandparents in like rural Punjab for like a few weeks and I just ended up writing this poem that was inspired by the research and I realized afterwards luckily the program that I was in was quite flexible in terms of what it was asking from us it was not asking for like a 20 page paper you could kind of take it in different directions and so as a result I ended up writing an essay that went with the poem and then that cited a lot of the kind of historical context and research that I'd been doing. So it was trying a kind of a way to bring that together. But then also in some ways I thought maybe, I mean, I was researching this poet who like did emphasize actually stepping back from a very like intellectual framework to think about emotion and to honor the humanity and emotions of people who had been dehumanized in a colonial and very patriarchal system in the way that she advocated for women's rights and marriage and, and things like that. And so I thought maybe there's a way that one can almost like enact that project oneself by trying to explore a different medium of writing. So I, I really enjoyed it. I realized then like how much I missed writing creatively because it had been so long and I'm kind of hoping to find ways to weave that back into my life because definitely when I'm in school it's like very very academic and I enjoyed that too but like it's it's different it's you know it's a different kind of writing and it ended up coming together I ended up making an art piece about her that went with the poem and the essay so I felt like all my <laughs> writing and art interests came together ultimately and, uh, and and I was you know very glad to have had that opportunity to branch out a little bit from what I was so used to doing in class and do something a little different. I don't know if I have it figured out yet in terms of like how to keep doing that going forward, but I really hope to have kind of pathways to do that. And I got quite lucky because there was a journal of Asian studies, an undergraduate journal that was founded at the University of Michigan quite recently. And I think they and a lot of newer publications, I've been going through this process at Columbia myself because a friend of mine and I were inspired this past summer to found a journal of Asian studies at Columbia. And we were trying to set this up and speaking to different faculty and people in the library staff 
we were realizing like there are different ways to express the findings of research that are not just academic papers. And so even this journal at Michigan, they were open to kind of accepting a poem and working with me on that rather than just accepting a very academic paper, which I mean, I was glad because I think it would not have worked for like a very literary thing because it was also like very much grounded in history. But for them, like, you know, it was it was focused on Asia and it was focused on the themes that they're interested in. And it was just a more creative way of like trying to express things that otherwise I could have expressed academically in a kind of academic article. So I got to ended up working with them on a kind of publication project, which was really exciting. But yeah, I think there was there was definitely value in, in stepping back and trying something new. And I think that's like, there are obviously different ways in which one could have taken that one could have really gone into the art side of it or gone into digital humanities and done something there. But yeah, I'm really glad to have had that opportunity. And I think there's definitely some value in going into creative writing as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, thank you for that. And it seems really interesting, like the way you weave in so many interests, like it's not just research or it's not just art, nor is it just poetry, but then you weave everything together to make a very meaningful narrative, which I really appreciate. Yeah. And speaking about Mahadevi Varma and how she is a less known figure in, in the Indian history of freedom struggle and things like that. And Again, looking at the kind of non-linearity that you were speaking about earlier, how do you find researching about figures who are off the off main mainstream history? How do you find researching these figures feeds into your liking for justice and activism in general? I also read that you working as a research assistant at Columbia Law School. So how do how does this liking for looking at little de roots in history do, like how does that feed into your liking for law and activism? Yeah, I think it's an excellent question because I've been asking myself this a lot recently. Like I definitely, when I was in like 11th grade, I had watched the, like this quite famous documentary that came out on justice, like Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And it made me very inspired about like law and using law as a tool for advancing gender equality. And then this interest in history kind of emerged and especially in these kind of untold histories. And I was for the past year, like really asking myself if there was a way to kind of pursue both or find some kind of convergence of the two. And I think where I'm increasingly hoping at least that it lies is in thinking about like the concepts of justice and human rights from an angle of people who have generally not been given a voice in articulating human rights and articulating gender equality or you know these these kinds of debates by which I mean like I think when we've studied like histories of human rights it's generally been quite centered, I think, on thinkers in like Europe or in America setting up democratic systems. And then recently, of course, people have been quite rightfully criticizing this, I mean, or like, you know, aspects of these visions of human rights, because they've been saying like the same Europeans who preach, you know, universal human rights were at the same time colonizing. So does that mean that the entire vision of human rights kind of crumbles? Like, wh where do we kind of go from there? And I almost wonder if like looking at a figure like Mahadevi or another figure who I actually found quite interesting, Hansa Mehta, who was in this woman from India who was in the committee that was deriving, de deriving the Universal Declaration of Human Rights after World War II. The reason we have women in the Universal Declaration was partly because Hansa Mehta insisted upon it. And she actually like when Eleanor Roosevelt was chairing this committee, she was originally going to use the word man as a kind of like universal you know, subject for all of humanity. And Hansa Mehta actually really pushed for including the word woman in that declaration in order to basically for for her, like it was a way of preventing people from later using that language to exclude women from, you know, the protections and the human rights that were being given. So to me, like if someone like her kind of made such a significant, you know, 
contribution to one of the most basic human rights doctrines we have today, then like, I think then, I don't know, to me, there's still hope in that project of human rights, because there's a way maybe we can reconceptualize it through the lens of someone like her, and which is maybe offering us a different perspective from solely looking at human rights as something that came out of Europe or that came out of like America, you know, in like that kind of Western history. I don't think that means like you don't study the Western history or you don't critique it. Like I'm definitely, I, I see a lot of value in that. And I think I've learned so much from that experience. But my hope is that in like studying individuals like her or someone like Mahadevi, you get the opportunity then to think about how, you know, someone who's been at the intersection of like a growing anti-colonial movement. And, and it definitely is aware that, you know, language of human rights has been abused to exploit, you know, her own people. And at the same time, like, is fighting for equality, right? And it's very clearly like fighting for reform. She's not fighting for a return to Orthodox Hinduism. Like she's asking for reforms for women and for people of lower castes and for generally to make it in a more egalitarian kind of practice of religion and within society. Like the way that they kind of reconciled the, you know, these views with, with some kind of activism for equality. Like I think maybe there's something there that we could learn from today when we continue to have these debates about what human rights framework should look like and whether it's Western centric or not, that maybe like it would really help us now, you know, and it's something that, I mean, connecting it to this work at the law school, one of the first conversations I had with the director of this project, which is about the Equal Rights Amendment and advancing that cause in the U.S., was actually something that went beyond the framework of U.S. constitutional law. We were talking about how constitutions like India's or South Africa's have, from the very inception, had a protection for gender equality, which the U.S. constitution doesn't, partly because these are newer constitutions written, you know, after the Second World War, after this process of decolonization, and so they've had this opportunity to look at past constitutions and reflect on them and framing their own. And so in some ways, there's something that the movement for, you know, enshrining gender equality in the U.S. Constitution could learn from looking at the constitutions of non-Western countries who are much newer in terms of their constitutional frameworks and their protections for gender equality or generally for human rights. And I thought that was so interesting, even with something as like the Equal Rights Amendment, which is definitely, you know, at the end of the day, it's about reforming the U.S. Constitution. You could still think about it from a broader framework. And in some ways, it removes a lot of limitations that are that people have when they just think about things in a US or in a Western centric framework, because it's a new way of thinking about what it means to be an activist for gender equality or for human rights. And it also means that you might demand more than maybe you've been trained to demand because while the US for you know almost 300 years has had a constitution that did not enshrine gender equality, a lot of these countries outside of the US, outside of Europe, have made it one of their founding principles. And, you know, what could this country learn from that? So I think there's some value in that kind of process of exchange of ideas and exchange of activism that is really, like, to me, like, something that's really exciting and inspiring. And so I think, like, I don't know, going forward, I have definitely not read enough on Hansa Mehta or on, you know, any of these figures. And there is not even as much out there as there is, you know, on the kind of history of how human rights theories were developed in, like, Europe, for instance. So I hope that we'll see more scholarship in that area and I hope to be able to spend more time with that because I don't know I, I think like to me it's almost a way of like fighting off the disillusionment that comes when you just look at the way that the language of human rights came and then was abused by people for the sake of say colonization or subjugation because if the people who were on the other side who were receiving that treatment could still claim 
those rights and still very much believed in that project and defined it right in their own way like I don't think it's fair to say that they were just using the language of Europeans I think they were redefining that language and often drawing on maybe some of their own background and historical context from India or from South Africa or from elsewhere in the world I think like that process is really exciting to me and I think it could be a way of maybe informing the kind of legal activism for justice that takes that you know takes place today and broadening our horizon somewhat. Yes, yeah, that seems really insightful, especially like the little points of a, a Hansa Mehta. Like, I really didn't know about that at all. I like found this out like by like, I think I was like reading like random Wikipedia articles and I like came across, like, you know, like it's completely not something like you learn right on the side. But yeah, no, it's, it's mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, thank you for hearing that. And maybe this ties a little bit about your work for the community. So how do you feel ideas of justice and gender equality can actually be be transmitted to the people who are most affected by these problems in terms of your experience in community, in leading community service? And also you studied Hindi as a critical language. So was that to make your communication with people on the field better or was it to inform your research more or is there some other reason why you chose to study Hindi? Yeah, actually, I had a very odd kind of (laughs) experience of like primary education in the sense that I was basically in school in India, like that's where I began school and I was in the Indian education system until basically like fifth grade. And then I did two semesters in the US and then came back and then finished school at an international school in Delhi where we didn't have Hindi. So I was studying Hindi up until I was maybe like 12, 13. And then I stopped and I was struggling with it back then because we were not speaking it too much at home. So like I would do stuff at school and then it would kind of, I would forget what I was doing. And, you know, it was like a, it was not a, (laughs) my command of the Hindi language is not very good. (laughs) Let's put it that way. And I like hadn't come back to it because we didn't have it in school. And so I was like, you know, I don't know why I would be doing this. And I basically just spoke a little, like I could colloquially speak it, but I hadn't, you know, done it formally since that young age. And then I got into reading Mahadevi's works, many of which, like the poetry, I think has been translated more, but still like she has a lot of these political essays that would, which is what I was kind of focusing on in my project. And there's only really like one collected translation of that, which was published like four or five years ago. A lot of those just remain untranslated. She wrote all these editorials during the 1930s, which they're all in Hindi. They're not, you know, a lot of them have not never been made public in English. In fact, someone was, this, this one like literary scholar was writing about how a lot of like men at this time whose writings we do have access to a lot of these very like forward-thinking kind of nationalists from India, they would get the opportunity to be educated in Britain. And so then they would learn English and then they would write in English. Whereas women who might have been coming from like, you know, wealthier backgrounds or high caste backgrounds where they could actually afford to do that, they would still not be trained in English because the idea was like, why would they be writing for the public? They would never be seen as writing for the public. So they would write in Hindi. But as a consequence, there's now this amazing body of Hindi literature that someone like Mahadevi has contributed to, which can be accessed by so many more people as a result of it not being in English and written in a very like academic sense. And so that was something that really inspired me to go back into like improving Hindi and actually going back into studying the language this past summer. And I definitely hope to keep being able to do that. So originally I definitely came in from a place of like, oh, I would like to, you know, be able to do more research in this area and I was definitely struggling with the Hindi primary sources and so I thought you know if I do this then hopefully I can read more primary sources rather than relying on translations or really like struggling through every paragraph of like this Hindi essay and so that was the kind of original motivation but I think as you were saying like in your question there's been a part of me that is thinking like 
I think there's some really interesting ways that we can see Mahadevi academically and that she can, or, or and I'm using her as, you know, one example, but you, you can definitely think about someone like Hansa Mehta. You can think about, I think all of these kind of forgotten like activists from this period who do not maybe fit our mold of how you would imagine, a, you know, a nationalist or an anti-colonial figure at the time, but nonetheless contributed so much to these movements for justice and for independence. And with all of them, like there's a lot we could think about them in an acad academic context. But then as you're saying, there's also a lot that needs to be done in terms of like actual activism, in terms of actually reforming laws and reforming social customs. And that's not going to come from sitting and writing research papers as much as, you know, one enjoys that and thinks that that's valuable. And so I had done work when I was in high school on education. We were developing a curriculum to teach English to high school age students coming from government schools where they were not getting the same kind of daily exposure to English as you would get if you were in an English speaking household. So that obviously then puts them at a disadvantage in terms of accessing scholarships, accessing jobs. And one thing that we tried to do there was to incorporate social science topics in the teaching of English, because we thought that, you know, when you're, I think the struggle that we had at, at this period was that a lot of the English curriculums for learners were, were targeted at young learners and they weren't like, you know, stimulating for someone who is our age and who is interested in the kind of political and social issues around them and wants to talk about those. And so we tried to develop a curriculum where one could talk about these problems in English so that they would have that practice, but they could also reflect on kind of their own experiences with different environmental, political kind of social issues. And so I haven't had the chance to really do that since coming to the U.S. for college and this pandemic disrupting everything. But I have been thinking, kind of looking at the next summer, I, the fellowship program I'm in does let you kind of extend your project into the summer before your third year of college. So I definitely know I'm doing something in this area next summer, but I'm still trying to decide what that would be. But my hope is that maybe with these ideas of education and like in using kind of curriculum building maybe as a way to make these stories powerful and meaningful to people outside of a very academic audience. And Hindi could, I think, definitely be a way to do that because as you're saying, it's like, I mean, unlike English, it's a language that, you know, far more people are speaking and far more people are able to engage with. And I think that's partly why someone like Mahadevi wrote in Hindi. She was educated. I mean, she actually spoke English and she chose at a certain point in her college career to partly inspired by like meeting Gandhi and engaging with the that very like, this was like, you know, in the 1920s, like after like the colonial atrocity of the Jallianwala Bagh massacre that had happened in 1919. And I think that during the surge of the nationalist movement, she kind of caught up in that she felt that she did not want to speak English anymore. And she wanted to just speak Hindi and write in Hindi, which is why all of her later works are completely in Hindi, which I think there is something kind of valuable to that you know, that language is a medium of, of communication. And so I definitely, I don't think my Hindi is at all at par, but I would really hope to kind of go back into that and maybe use that to develop some kind of a curriculum or a way of doing storytelling that's maybe bilingual. And that brings in these people's narratives as a way of like, thinking more about our history and thinking more critically about our history and where one might move forward from there. So that's kind of the, the hope. It's, it's definitely not in any very concrete way like established, but I did really love that process of building curriculum and building it collaboratively, I think, with the students. We would test ideas and, you know, see how people like them and then go from there in terms of how we would develop curriculum. So there's a part of me that really would love to get back into doing that, but we're doing that now for these kind of historical narratives, because as we're saying it, like it does come back to telling stories and finding anomalies that, you know, are in, that make for really interesting stories. And you just tell them in different ways. Like there's one way of telling it to an academic audience. And there's another way of telling it to someone who's a student in school and who's in the process of studying history. So, yeah, I mean, the hope is maybe to find some 
form of doing that, I think, in the future that might maybe use art as well to like tell the stories, but that would make these people's work accessible, I think, in a broader way. And I think some of it is also reframing. Like there, I think someone like Mahadevi is definitely like studied. Like I, I was speaking to my parents about this, like they encountered her poetry in school in their curriculum, but maybe not studied in the way that one could really fully view her as someone who was not just like a poet, but also really like her poetry and her writing was informing a lot of social activism. So it might just be about recasting some figures that people are already familiar with and by seeing them in these kind of different lights. But in any case, I hope that that like made some sense. <laughs> but I, yeah, hopefully that like through education and through curriculum building, there's some ways to broaden kind of this, the scope of this work. Yeah, definitely. Really interesting kind of narratives like weaving in, which is really interesting to hear. And speaking about how you made a, a syllabus collaboratively for people and actually involving the people who are going to learn from it in the making of the syllabus itself. And like, this is a little related, but kind of disconnected. But then when you look at research methodology, do you feel that there needs to be a way to involve the people who are affected by the research work that people are doing and the people who are actually reading your research in the way you do research in itself? Do you feel that needs to be some sort of change in the way research is conducted in history? And what do you think makes a good research paper yeah. So I think like, and this might be something that makes the process of doing history research maybe a bit different. I mean, definitely my main experience has been with history. It has not been as much with the other social sciences, but I would imagine like, I mean, actually in my Hindi class, there was someone who was actually coming, I mean, a couple of students coming from like an anthropology background. And so one of the reasons that they were studying Hindi was they wanted to be able to go and interview people for their research. With history, sometimes you can do that. I mean, if your project is recent enough or you can like speak to, you know, historians or do oral history collection of people recounting something that's happened, then then you have that opportunity to actually speak to people. But oftentimes, like everyone you could have spoken to has died, you know, many decades ago. And as much as you would love to speak to them, that's not, you know, something you can do. And so then it becomes challenging because like, as you're saying, there's this risk, right, with this, I think that sometimes you get so caught up in it, maybe an intellectual problem or in trying to make an argument that you can totally forget that there are real human implications to what happens in history, too. I mean, even if it's not a kind of anthropology, sociology project where you're speaking with people, you're still like speaking about people's history. And that does have a lot of significance for how people might develop their own sense of identity relative to their country, relative to their culture, relative to the rest of the world. And, and I mean, that is quite important to be thinking about. And I mean, in terms of what one can do, like, I, I think on the one hand, like, obviously you can try to go beyond, you know, the context that you're familiar with to study different contexts and try to bring those in. So like, say you're writing about, you know, something that might be like the Equal Rights Amendment is like, as a, as a case study, like there, there would be value in going beyond if you were just comfortable with US constitutional law, maybe there's value in studying different constitutions and thinking about gender in comparative ways. Like, I think generally that kind of like analysis that's comparative can elucidate a lot, even if your final paper is not a comparative paper, and it's just focused on one country or one issue, thinking about things beyond that one context, I think can help you, you know, 
it add more nuance to your argument. It can help you find different research sources that you wouldn't have thought of as relevant because you can see their relevance in other contexts. So I think that's definitely something that helps. I think adding to that is, you know, this idea we were talking about patterns and anomalies and patterns that you don't want to throw out an anomaly just because it makes things complicated because it's easy to write. I mean, easy, like I mean, nothing is very easy in an academic sense, but like it's easier to convince people of a linear historical narrative. Like it's if you had to convince someone, it's easier to convince them that like, you know, everyone became more free over the course of the century and everything was perfect, you know, by the end of it, because these people came up with ideas of human rights and, you know, now we're here. In reality, like as we were discussing, there, there's a lot more that goes on there. And that doesn't mean that you reach a very depressing conclusion, but it does mean you reach a conclusion that like appreciates the non-linearity of reform processes as one example, but just generally about how I think different like societies have progressed over, you know, the past few centuries. And so like, you don't want to like, I think, be dissuaded by finding nonlinearity or try to force things to fit a particular narrative. I think there is value in entering a research process very open to where it will take you and where the primary sources will take you and being open to following trends that you would not have expected, you know, when doing that. I think that can really make for a paper that's impactful. And even using that actually as an entryway into research is another thing. Like when I was doing Pioneer, my project ended up being about the AIDS crisis in Botswana and these government policies that were passed during the 1990s and their effectiveness. And actually, I only came to that because we were in Botswana. I was there with my family over like the spring break of 10th grade. And someone we were with there was talking about, you know, like he, he said something like, you know, people here will be like lucky if they survive to age 40. And I'm just like, like what? Like that is mind-blowing thing to hear from him to say right so then of course one talked more and he talked about how the AIDS crisis had really wrecked the country's public health infrastructure and it had really deprived so many people of like what would have been longer lives and to me what was shocking was that this whole time he had been speaking very favorably of the government and how the government had dealt with different kinds of other you know health issues or safety issues and yet here like this was just a complete you know like it, I mean it was just really tragic in terms of what happened over the course of the 90s in the country and that anomaly that like the fact that you know a government that like he's praising so much at the end of the day could not stop this crisis when Botswana when one kind of got into more of the research I like I mean it was even more shocking it's I think researchers call it it's some one researcher at least described it as like the Botswana paradox because they had better public health infrastructure than many of their neighboring countries and yet a far worse AIDS crisis you know so it was it was just a very like like that anomaly ended up driving the entire research which ended up reaching the conclusion that just the having the infrastructure and following the kind of western epidemiological models that were being put out at that time in the 90s about how to deal with AIDS would not have been enough because you also have to factor in cultural and religious factors that are specific to Botswana that are not going to be the same as what occurs in the US or what occurred in Europe, which were kind of the two main case studies for AIDS at that time in the early 90s. I'm going on a huge tangent here, but it's just to say that like, that's just one case where I felt like finding an anomaly and really interrogating it and asking why it came to be could lead to insights that are productive, right? And it doesn't mean, again, that you throw out Western epidemiology. It doesn't mean you like devalue like the, you know, having public health infrastructure, but it does mean like you can do supplementary things that lead to more effective public health outcomes in that case. And I do think, you know, these are conclusions that like all these public health historians were drawing at the time. And I imagine that, you know, 40 years down the line, maybe people will draw these conclusions about COVID and about how we've been responding to this pandemic, right? Like there is a lot of social 
elements to it that like have contributed to the spread of the disease that are separate from like the public health response and the medicine and the vaccine and also like interrelated in terms of how a policymaker might think about making public health policy anyway so which is just to say I guess like you want to look comparatively I think you want to look for anomalies and interrogate them and then the last thing I would say is that like there is this bind especially I think in history as we were discussing because you can't speak to these people. And even if you could speak to these people, you're never gonna be able to represent their entire story. And I think you have to acknowledge that when writing the paper. Like, I think there's value to saying, like being intentional about how you choose the scope of your primary sources and explaining why you chose maybe primary sources from a particular region or from a particular group of people who you're leaving out, right? And who you can include because you're never going to be able to include everyone. And so you want to be intentional in that process and you want to be explicit about it because some years down the line, someone might read your paper and they might take up a source that you excluded and they might use that to develop a whole other research project that might add to our kind of knowledge base. So I think that like having that humility as well to acknowledge that you're not going to be able to have everything in here. So let's be as intentional as possible in terms of what we choose. And let's definitely try to choose as broadly as possible to answer our research question. But let's also like acknowledge who we are leaving out in that process, because I think that's where a lot of the problems that we've been discussing lie, where people don't acknowledge the voices of marginalized groups in these kinds of histories. And then that ends up kind of erasing their contributions. Whereas if those were acknowledged, then that would at least leave space for other people to come in and take up their work and add to things. So I guess that's what I would say, like if those were maybe my my three things, like about uh, at least about how I think about approaching like a research paper. Yeah, thank you for that. And maybe this is like just a point that we could exclude later, but then when you were talking about about like how people like linear histories, I was just, and it's like easier to convince people of linear histories. I was just thinking about my experiences and like, so until 10th grade, I studied in the national curriculum. And every year we used to look at a different segment of Indian history mm. and until uh, for a very long time I felt that it was very linear and it was easy for me to buy into that history but then actually I feel that in 10th grade there was one bit about Indian history that in the national curriculum that I really liked because it looked at some non-linearity it acknowledged some bit of anomaly as you were mentioning and that that was something that really made me interested in the social sciences because it looked at how so before that I always studied Swaraj as something that was there everywhere but then in that lesson we looked at how and it was also because of my teacher and like the kind of discussions we had as well but then we looked at how Swaraj meant different things to different people and how it wasn't just this unifying kind of umbrella concept that every Indian nationalist bought into yeah so yeah so I I just I mean I definitely relate to this experience I had the like I actually yeah, I'd done, I mean, Indian history in the national syllabus until I had switched school systems. And then I only got back to Indian history when I was doing IB, actually, because then we were doing history of Asia. And so my teacher basically used that as an opportunity to really delve into South Asian history over like 
kind of the colonial period and the independence movement. Mm -hmm. But I had a very similar experience with the US, like where like, you know, you're kind of growing up hearing these narratives. Mm -hmm. of, I mean, there, I think there's so much that goes on about like how American history can be politicized. I think similar, it, it's not just the US, it's really every country, like you can politicize a history, right? And make it make certain people look very good and, and make things look very like neat and, you know, like, and very clear. <laughs> when, as you're saying, it's not always like that. And I think very similarly to you, like it was when I was in 10th grade and we were, you know, reading this, like this textbook. And it was the first time that like I had read a textbook that didn't like say like oh yeah everything like immediately got better like it actually in like picked out moments when you know things were not progressing linearly or a concept meant something different as you're saying to a different group of people that made history so interesting to me and I like I wish we would do that more because I think I don't know I I, I think that would make people more interested in it as a subject right or in the social <laughs> science like because like we're not like everything's not like neat and packaged off like nicely <laughs> if I want that I go to math <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I don't get that in history, but I completely agree with you. I think there's so much value to to looking at things that way. And even like afterwards, like at, the, at that stage, we were still learning everything from one textbook. And then when I got into IB, that mm -hmm. was the first time I really thought about what is historiography. And my teacher would like bring in different textbooks about the same topic. So we'd have like five textbooks on like, one unit on the Indian independence movement. And then you really realize like, yeah, you're really getting one narrative. You just read one textbook <laughs> and you, you want to be going beyond there and, and looking at the primary sources themselves and looking at how different historians have written and definitely something that can be generalized to other social sciences, I think. But yeah, I, I think I am completely with you. Like that makes it such a more exciting subject to study as well yeah yeah, yeah. maybe uh, yeah so I'll come back to the question so yeah this is just like a little bit of a deal yeah. that yeah I thought of so you spoke about your about the research that and how you study the Botswana paradox in the AIDS crisis in the 1990s for your pioneer research and and how how do you feel that your pioneer research work and your other experiences studying history and other subjects really feeds into the way that you do undergraduate research currently and maybe how does that lead to your future passions and interests? Yeah, I mean, I think something that like, and, and I wonder if like, I don't know, I'd, I'd be interested to see if it was a similar kind of experience for you as well, like going into pioneer, but like, I thought, you know, especially like being in 10th grade, like the idea of like doing, like I did not even know that there was research outside of a lab when I was in 10th grade. Like it was literally just through applying to Pioneer that I was like, oh, like there really is something here. Like I still remember my high school counselor had like, I was meeting with him in like the fall semester of 10th grade and he gives me this journal, which is the Pioneer 2017 journal that a representative had given him. And he was like, you know, see if this is something of interest to you. And there was one history article in the entire, you know, journal. I mean, there were others in the social sciences, but there was one history one and I read it and I was like, wow, like this is like, I didn't know that, you know, you can write something like this. Like, this is so fascinating. And I think getting that process of getting that early exposure to like what history research can look like, and then having that access to a professor as a mentor, like at that young age of like, when you're still like figuring things out, like, I think it was, I, I mean, truly like one of the most defining experiences I had in high school. Like, I still am just incredibly grateful to have had that. I'm still in touch with my professor. She was such a wonderful person. She really like, I think, trained us in revising our writing. Like, I mean, obviously through the research process and thinking about like, how do you define the scope of a research paper? How do you go about looking at primary sources, evaluating them critically? But then also just like, how do you keep, you know, every draft, even my final draft that I sent her, like <laughs> she would still like, she still had all these comments. Like I actually, when I went through later the process of giving it to the journal, I went through the paper one more time because I was like, my professor 
Spencer has given me like 50 more comments, even though like it's like the third round because, you know, she always had things that you could fix and things you could clean up and things you could improve. So it really implement, I think, gave you that mindset of like, like the way of looking at your research process and your writing process is something that's definitely ongoing. And you're still, you're always like kind of growing in this sense. Like I think every draft you could probably keep doing more at a certain point, obviously you have to stop and, you know, say something is done, but I think it like did train me in a way of like looking at like how to structure a paper well, how to be very intentional in things that I was earlier just doing. Like I would not think, you know, that critically about like how I'm ordering paragraphs within a section. I might just say, oh, this is this section. Now I'll just, you know, write it. But when I was working with her, like it was very much like everything had to be super methodical and very intentional. And that's a mindset that I feel like has really helped. I mean, I, I bring that to writing essays when I'm in college for my history classes. And I think it's always been something really valuable. And then also just engaging in that process of dialogue. Like, I think something when I was younger, when I would write an essay, I'd feel like, okay, like I've written this, it's done. But something I'm realizing, I mean, I realized through that experience in Pioneer and I definitely, it has been my experience now in like history lectures and seminars or just other, I mean, like in any kind of seminar style, like humanities, social science class, like you gain a lot from actually like putting the thought into your argument and your thesis and then presenting it to, you know, classmates or professor and going through a dialogue of like, how can we tighten this? Why is this decision being made? Why am I leaving something out? Why am I including this thing? And then revising, like rather than just like thinking about it as like you write everything at once and then you're done. So I think like that dialogue that you get, that you start in Pioneer, like it really never finishes. Like you keep having these discussions with your peers who are doing other research, which is like super exciting. And then also like with your professors. And I do think like having that, like that experience in Pioneer of like the value you of having those conversations and not just being writing by yourself, but actually making it a collaborative process where you're really engaging in dialogue with other people. Like that is something that I will always really value. And I think like continues to help me today. Like, I think that's definitely something that is really like, you might not otherwise get that I think in a high school experience if you're not getting this opportunity to do research. And so I think that's really fantastic. Yeah. Yes, yeah, definitely. Yeah, again, this ties to like something that I remember so initially I did the pioneer program in 11th grade and I had no idea of like the kind of like the process and how methodical you could be while looking at the subject and I feel that kind of really yeah it was a really fantastic experience yeah just re-looking the way you look at things yeah and that's really important yeah. I feel about the pioneer experience here yeah. and maybe one last question if time this permit so you had the opportunity to work as a research assistant and to be part of multiple research projects as an undergraduate and so how do you think other pioneer scholars and alumni could approach trying to get research opportunities at an undergraduate level I think like, I think I've been quite lucky and I think maybe everyone will tell you that because something, you know, like I've sort of come up the belief, especially like after the last kind of two years that like, I think the right things end up working themselves out. And I think that's as true of like a research opportunity as it is of colleges. And, you know, like, I mean, all of these processes are so like, they can be so stress inducing because you really don't know like what's going to happen and how you'll be like, you know, received and where, where you can go and what will work. But ultimately I, I do think the right things kind of fall into place. And what I would kind of say 
made like that has really guided me has been, you know, definitely do your research into the opportunities that are available. Like there are often so many great fellowship programs that are open to undergrads, some of which are open to young undergrads. I mean, I got quite lucky with the program that I'm currently in where like they were specifically wanting to mentor and help first and second year college students, which is rare because usually you think you have to compete against like, you know, like students who are far more experienced than you to get these opportunities. But there are some programs that are realizing that and they're trying to kind of guide and support younger, you know, undergrads and give structure to their research as well, just like Pioneer did in a way like, you know, these these kinds of things, I think, open so many doors. So it's it's a kind of similar thing in an undergrad level, but that we got in high school with with Pioneer. So I would definitely look out for opportunities like this and speak to, you know, fellowship advisors at your school and and see what, you know, they would recommend as well. Because again, like there's just a wealth of things out there and some of the things might be internal to your university some of them might be external and doing your research and staying on top of what's available to you is I think really helpful in that sense and then you know putting yourself out there and applying and you like especially like going into this process it's it can be intimidating I do think as we were discussing like having past research experience from Pioneer it kind of helps you because you have some sense of what research might look like but it's still like it's scary like going into college thinking about like oh how are they going to like compare me to other applicants and things like that nonetheless I would do it right and I actually there, one of our fellowship advisors said something very interesting like at, at a program this this summer where she was saying that like fellowships tend to build on fellowships which is to say like once you've done one like then you feel more confident applying to others and like you know and then you feel like oh like it's fine I can do research but that initial breakthrough can be really hard like I remember like my freshman year like like the first semester, I was just like, where do you, you know, where do you go? Like, who are you, are you supposed to email people? Like, how are people doing this? You know, but if you put yourself out there through applying to a program or reaching out to a professor or to a project that you think is interesting, I think that kind of is how things come together. Like, that's how the work that I'm end up I'm doing now at the Equal Rights Amendment project kind of came together. Like, I had always been really passionate about the amendment. And when I had seen that this project got launched, I ended up just sort of reaching out to them and it worked out. And it's actually been exciting in a way to work on a project that's so new because there's a lot of kind of development that's going on in these very early stages about setting the goals of the project, setting the scope of the project, and they're giving us more of a voice than maybe you would have had in a more established project because they're still in this formative stage and they're interested in what undergrads have to say. So I would look out for things like that, things that are new, things that are up and coming. Also, you know, programs that are, you know, sometimes niche programs that might be in a certain field that you're interested in, I would, you know, go for those definitely. And then there's also just value in reaching out to professors or like, if you're working with certain faculty in your coursework right now and you're really interested in their work speaking to them or speaking to them and seeing if they would refer you elsewhere like that's another thing even when you do cold emails or if you speak to your own instructors like they might not necessarily take you on as a research assistant but they could put you in touch with people right like especially if they work with you and they know your interests a lot of these people are very much there to help you and support you and I think like it just comes down to making use of that those resources and putting yourself out there and that's kind of how things kind of coalesce so I would definitely advise sort of doing things like that. And this might actually be more in actually answering to your previous question, but it's something that just came to me. But I was thinking about like another thing that maybe one took away from Pioneer, which was like, I think an element of like courage that comes in from like doing a project yourself, that's quite self-directed. Like when you're doing work in Pioneer, like you're not joining a professor's research project most of the time. You're really developing your own research question and you're doing that project. And when you go to college, like there are opportunities to join existing research projects, right? Like that's kind of what one could do by becoming a research assistant to a professor who's working on a book or joining a certain kind of think tank or something like that. But there's also sometimes you might not find what you're looking for in those existing projects. And I think going through a process like Pioneer 
it kind of makes you feel motivated to pitch your own thing. Like that's kind of what happened to me with this work with Mahadevi, where I was applying for this fellowship and we had the opportunity to either pitch our own research topic and find a faculty mentor for it or join an existing faculty project. And it was definitely a scary choice because I was also like, you know, are my odds like better if I like join an existing project because then they're not taking such a big risk in investing in me because it's something that already is going on. It's not like me trying to do something myself, but I couldn't find any project on you know, like activism by like Indian women or by Asian women more generally, which is like something I'm very like interested in studying. And so, you know, I ended up kind of feeling like I'll pitch a project. And I think one of the reasons why I felt like one could do that was because a process like Pioneer, like I think exposes you to the value of doing that and to kind of identifying your own research question in collaboration with professors. Like I definitely spoke to my professors in my fall semester about what I was interested in and they were able to direct me to certain books and resources, which I used to propose this project in my application. But it was definitely a process that like, I think like Pioneer was quite empowering in that sense because there was not a ton of literature I could have, I found when I was in 10th grade looking at Botswana, but my professor was still very encouraging about going for it and like working with what I had, identifying where I could draw comparative links and build a source space and write a paper. And I think like going through that experience then, like when you're in college, it kind of makes you realize like you can pitch your own research project at a young age and still get a lot from doing that if you're not finding what you really are passionate about in the existing projects. So, you know, there's an interplay to it. I think there's a lot of value from joining an existing project and being mentored there and learning about how they do with their work, which you could take into your career later on. But then also like there's this other side to it where like you could try to kind of chart your own path and you get the resources to do that at a place like Pioneer. So, yeah. <laughs> I feel those were like the questions that I had. So yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to come and discuss all of these really insightful experiences. And I actually learned so much uh, and uh, like this was just a conversation of an hour and I actually learned like so much like right from like specific areas to like how to approach research and yeah it was really really exciting to speak to you thank you so much for yeah thank you very much for listening to this episode of uncharted if you enjoyed this episode of the podcast please feel free to leave a review and don't forget to follow us at pioneer underscore academics and Scholars of Pioneer on Instagram. See you next time.